This episode is brought to you by the One Drop Foundation. Created by Cirque du Soleil founder Guy Laliberté, the One Drop Foundation works to ensure sustainable access to safe water, sanitation, and hygiene for vulnerable communities around the world. Their innovative approach is centered on inspiring change through the power of art and developing creative partnerships and fundraisings. I invite you to find out more on their projects and how you can donate at onedrop.org slash donate. That's O-N-E-D-R-O-P dot org slash donate. You're listening to The Luxury Item, the podcast on the business of luxury and the people and companies that are shaping the future of the luxury industry. Here's your host, Scott Kerr. In an increasingly digital world, some of the biggest names in retail are embracing innovation and forming new retail labs to seek out new opportunities to connect with consumers. They are looking to these labs and accelerators to provide new ideas, partnerships, and collaborations on some of the most pressing challenges in the industry. From supply chain and inventory improvements to new payment options, these brands are going all in on digital while attempting to keep costs in check. The luxury sector is no exception. The luxury goods market is evolving and traditional stores are set to be radically transformed, becoming increasingly experiential and high-tech. Many of the luxury giants have already opened up retail innovation labs to find innovative solutions designed to reduce points of friction and improve the customer experience in-store. My guest today on The Luxury Item is Andrew Harsager, the founding director of the Retail Innovation Lab for Cartier. It's a division established to design and test new and experimental forms of retail experiences both in and beyond the boutique. Andrew's approach to innovation is rooted in human-centric industrial design principles and informed by his background in experience design for interactive objects and environments. Prior to Cartier, Andrew led strategy and business development for design firm Tellart, working with a diverse clientele that ranged from Google to the Smithsonian to the United Arab Emirates Prime Minister's Office, as well as roles in fashion and contemporary art. Welcome to The Luxury Item, Andrew. Thank you, Scott. Great to be here. Thank you so much for joining me. So how did Cartier's Retail Innovation Lab come about? Like, what was its mission when it was first launched? Well, the origin of the lab came in early 2017, maybe even late 2016. Um, our central innovation teams uh, in Paris were working on a big project as to how to create uh, better relevance and engagement with the brand across different markets that were you know, culturally very different from the cultures of our of our HQs in Paris and in Geneva, mm-hmm. um, and North America, of course, is is a big one. I mean, we have uh, as many different subcultures within our country as you know, as as there are states, as there are cities, um, and so you know, for our boutiques in North America, um, when you talk about retail, I mean, we we really enjoy the privilege of being a brand that comes into people's lives at moments of emotional significance. And like other luxury brands, you know, this is a very human focused business. Um, And a big reason why people go with us is to mark significant events in their lives or represent relationships or achievements. Um, And in any case, we'll always engage with the humans of the sales associates. And so the question then becomes, how can we innovate on that? How can we change the way that we present ourselves and the way that our business operates in order to create better relevance for those people 
you know, whose profiles really are very different than um, people in Europe. So the idea here was to place a creative team on the ground in the market, um, in, in our case in Brooklyn, and have it as an entity that um, exists in a way between the corporate entity and the boutiques. Um, a, a lab that can spend a lot of time speaking with sales associates, speaking with clients, creating prototypes, um, and through doing that, uh, innovate on how we reach people uh, at the Maison. So the idea was formulating for a long time. Its mission in the end became threefold. Um, on the first hand, it was to create smoothness in the operations of our business. Another part of our mission was to enchant the client experience, to you know, create new kinds of experiences for our clients to engage with the brand. Uh, and then the third one was um, characterized as explore new frontiers, meaning to look outside the world of luxury, outside of jewelry, um, look at communities within design and art and, um, and technology and academia, um, you know, reach into those communities and look for learnings that we could bring back to our business and ways that we could strengthen those communities in return. And so that's really one that's outside of projects, but is one that provides a cultural value uh, within the business. So originally it was meant that about a third of our work would come from each of those areas. Um, in the end, I think what we've discovered is that really each part of the, that mission exists in all of our projects um, to some degree or another. So it's been very interesting to figure out our way of working in reflection of that. Yeah, so when you joined in, in running the lab in 2017, what were you tasked to do? Well, when I came on, um, it was in September of 2017, and there was an idea for what we would do, but uh, not a lot of specifics on how we would how we would get there. You know, what model of innovation would we choose, and what would our staff profiles be? So, at the very beginning, what I needed to do was to translate the kind of overall goals for that mission and the kinds of projects that we would do into something that was actionable. And so that's what I did. We, we chose a very design-focused approach to innovation and a closed innovation model where we have the majority of our work being done by internal expert practitioners who are here with us in Brooklyn uh, on a full-time basis. And we were tasked with creating projects that were outside of, in a way, our day-to-day business challenges. You know, the, the big challenge that we faced was to not be perceived as an internal agency. That really isn't the role for the lab. You know, it's not about receiving briefs from different business departments. Right. What it is is about looking, you know, very deeply at what are the opportunity areas within our business and what kinds of clients can we reach in new ways and then determine projects that, you know, solve our pain points in those areas and create new kinds of experiences for the clients. So, a big part of that at the beginning was to determine a needs evaluation process that resulted in project opportunity areas. So we would spend about six months at a time working on a big question for the business. For example, an, an early one that we did was the question, how can we evoke products that aren't present? You know, something that is a fundamental problem in our world. Um, you know, we make precious goods and there's right. no possible way to include every item in every boutique. So that's gonna be a problem forever. The solutions to that problem, you know, we we examined in a big kind of, I guess you could call it an experience design approach, where there were a lot of solutions that were co-created between us and the business departments that are relevant to that question, um, down-selected, and that particular question resulted in five separate projects that went on 
almost to the present day. And it was about doing that, you know, on a regular basis. And so there came to be this pretty robust project pipeline that came out of that process. And, you know, those are the things that we've worked to develop and to transfer to the business between then and now. So is it the role of the Retail Innovation Lab to help Cartier senior executives, retail marketing, IT, and other teams to help them better understand the evolving customer journey and the pain points along the way? Uh, yeah, I would say yes, with an asterisk, maybe. Um, <laughs> you know, as I mentioned, we, we exist between the corporate entity and the boutiques. Um, you know, our mandate is transversal across departments. And when the lab was set up, the governance of the group was was set up in the same way. So, you know, from a governance perspective, we are controlled by uh, a steering committee that is uh, made up of senior leaders in the business. But I report just to the CEO in North America, Mercedes. And the reason that was chosen was to avoid some of the pitfalls of the bureaucracy within our business um, and to just very, very much exist with outside, outside these um, business verticals. You know, the idea of creating prototypes and putting them into our boutiques was is kind of a taboo in luxury. You know, we don't want to put unfinished stuff in front of clients, right? Um, but we do want to create a process that actually brings clients in as, as part of the creative process. You know, as as valuable um, entities of people who have really something very much at stake in the decisions that we make, and that's a different kind of respective, uh, respectful attitude to clients. So. I wouldn't characterize it necessarily as helping those teams understand. I think on an individual level, each of those departments understands the challenges that we have quite well already. But I think the thing is that in a corporate structure like ours, it becomes really easy to focus on working just from the point of view of siloed business verticals and not from the point of view of the client who, you know, themselves really, they interact with every single business vertical without realizing it. Um, and also from the associates in the field, the people who are in front of clients every day. So I think what we bring to the table is, is that more holistic perspective. It's, it's outside the functions of the business, and it's really focused on the humans who are going to use the services that we create. And the idea is that we accomplish those kinds of services with the tools and materials that are right for the task, uh, kind of irrespective of which part of the business that they come from. So I wouldn't presume that you know we can teach the other business departments anything so much as we are looking at from a different perspective and developing insights that they might not have access to. So I love that the lab is in Brooklyn. So why Brooklyn? Well, I think it was assumed at the beginning that we would be employing profiles of people that wouldn't want to work in our office in Midtown in New York on Fifth Avenue. Right. Um, you know, that's a very uh, traditionally focused sort of corporate office you know, where people, we have a, a ring of offices around the windows, we have cubicles in between, and the lab really needed a different cultural focus and a different mm -hmm. functional focus too. We have a workshop here where we're making prototypes. Um, we have a much more collaborative work style where we need a different type of facility to support. And really, I think it's true about the profiles. You know, we employ industrial and graphic designers here, uh, creative technologists, retail strategists, um, experienced producers, and all of these people come from creative communities in New York that in that oftentimes will center in Brooklyn or people will live here. So I think that's a very compelling reason to locate the office in, in this spot in Williamsburg. Do you have any other uh, labs around the world? Yeah, we opened in 2019 another lab in Shanghai to do the same kind of mission for the Chinese clientele. And one is in the works for Tokyo as well to do the same thing for Japan. And so that will open um, about mid-year next year. Yeah, well, those markets are very specific. Do you ever connect with them? 
Yes, absolutely. Um, the idea is that we are working as a network. Uh, we're not focused on exactly the same topics, um, and we certainly won't develop the same solutions, but we also will occasionally develop solutions that are relevant to the other market. So uh, we have actually already passed projects back and forth for implementation in, in uh, ways that are relevant locally. Um, and we have sharing sessions both with each other and with our central innovation teams to make sure that we're all aligned and sort of speaking with one voice as innovation in our business. So aside from Cartier, do you work with any other uh, Maisons at Richemont? No, we just focus on Cartier, although, you know, I think it's true, just like with the other markets at Cartier, I think it's also true that some of the solutions we develop will be relevant for the other Maisons, and um, we'd like to make those solutions available to them. So earlier you were talking about the types of people that are working at the lab. What type of specialists do you have there? Sure. Uh, well, we've got a small team. Our team's about 10 people. It's focused around the pillars of design, technology, and strategy. And there are different combinations of people that work on all of our projects, but more or less you can find representatives from each of those fields working on each thing. Um, in 2021, we had seven simultaneous projects, I believe, um, four of it, which we uh, transferred to the main business and, and finished. So, you know, kind of like any innovation lab at a corporation, I think I'm sure you've heard this from other guests, you know, big mm -hmm. challenge is transferring the projects to the main business and, you mm -hmm. know, seeing them live on. So I'm happy that we were able to do that with four projects this year. Uh, in terms of the projects that we can speak about, I can share one project that came out of the big investigation I mentioned earlier was a hologram vitrine for high jewelry, uh, which is meant to solve the problem of product discovery about that category in our boutiques that are smaller, which doesn't have high jewelry as part of their assortment. Right. Um, high jewelry, of course, is a category that before, sorry, it's a category that because of its retail value, you know, those are items that need to move with armored vehicles from place to place. So it becomes quite expensive and full of friction to move them from boutique to boutique. Nevertheless, we do do that quite frequently. But how can clients discover those items if they're not part of the boutique's permanent assortment was really the question here. So we created a piece of furniture with embedded computation and a hologram technique called Pepper's Ghost that allowed us to create essentially a vitrine that looked within the universe of the rest of our boutique, you know, was not distracting, it was quite beautiful, uh, but which showed digital items. And that's now been rolled out to five boutiques in the United States as of this fall. Um, there will be another one coming to New York uh, in the spring with the renovation of the mansion. And that project has now been transferred to our HQ teams to be made available globally. How do you measure the success of something like that? Well, it's interesting. That project is one where, since it's about discovery, it doesn't quite make sense to look at it in terms of sales lift. Right. Um, we don't have the assumption that someone will make a transaction on a piece of high jewelry just from seeing it in a digital format like that. But what it will do is expose to those clients truths about who we are as a creative maison and what are the symbols that we use, what are the motifs that show up in other kinds of jewelry, what are our techniques of craftsmanship. You know, these are the kinds of questions that can spawn interesting conversations between sales associates and clients. And really that can create concrete sales lift in other areas, um, as well as expanding the audience for high jewelry. So the KPIs for that become much more qualitative. It's about, is this usable by the sales associate in deepening their relationships with their clients? And that's a 
it's a hard thing to measure, but what we've had to do as a kind of accessory to this process is to create some norms around how we get that information. You know, when we put a prototype into the boutique, it's about creating observations and analyses, doing interviews with both the sales associates and with the clients to really very manually look at, did this have the kind of impact that we wanted it to have? So with that particular project, it really is much more qualitative. Others, you know, you can look at sales lift and make associations between the actual data and the boutique, and that becomes a little bit, a little bit easier to define. You said recently that one of the goals of the Retail Innovation Lab is to explore new frontiers outside of luxury and jewelry and see if there are interesting connections that could cross-pollinate to Cartier's business. So what outside sectors are you getting your inspiration from these days? Well, uh, you asked earlier about specific projects, and maybe it's helpful to illustrate this one with another specific project, which was one that I, I love using as an example because it's an immaterial project. It's not one that is you know, about implementing a new technology in the boutiques. Um, we created a program called Liaisons, which was an internal program meant to create spaces where people in our business, especially the sales associates, can interact with members of creative, cultural, academic, and entrepreneurial communities in New York. Mm-hmm. Um, these are communities that we do interact with, of course, in our business already, but oftentimes those interactions come at times when we have a commercial relationship with them, when we've hired an artist to do an installation at the boutique, for example. And so when you have a commercial relationship with someone from one of those communities, it does put a kind of constraint on the ways you can interact with them. And what we wanted to do here was to create a program that helped our sales associates find and embrace more of their interests outside of our business. And in doing that, they can deepen their relationships with clients who are also uh, interested in those worlds. You know, it's about connecting the worlds of the people who are our staff with the worlds of the clients that they, um, that they interact with. And so that has been really interesting. And I think it's a way uh, to get more value out of the different profiles that we employ at the lab, because these are the communities that these people come from. Again, that's about the cultural impact in the business more than it is about you know, the concrete influence on one of our projects. But in the end, it does also have a very meaningful impact on the relationships that get built. And just like every luxury business, we're one that everything comes down to the human relationships. Right. And so innovating on that is a very interesting and unusual question for retail. So I want to talk about the impact of the pandemic. With almost every major market on complete lockdown and last minute cancellations of major events and fairs back in 2020, luxury brands turned to online channels to answer client inquiries, as well as to push sales. And for Watches and Wonders Fair in Geneva, Cartier quickly set up its own Cartier Watchmaking Encounters digital platform to engage with clients. With almost all of Cartier's stores closed, did those same virtual interactions happen at the boutiques? Yeah, it's a very interesting question. Watchmaking encounters, I think you could say, was the sort of category of digital experience that edges closer to architecture or to a physical exhibition, meaning you know it's a sequence of spaces that each tell stories and reveals information about the products and the novelties that we're showing. And that's a, a great that's great for presentation of products, um, and it matches really the reality of watches and wonders more generally. But it's a different purpose than our commercial boutiques where. You do need to do the storytelling, but you also need to conduct transactions and allow people to discover 
the product on their own uh, based on their own interests and affinities. You know, it, it's funny, we had a number of uh, outside agencies over the pandemic pitch us on services for reproducing our physical boutiques online through, you know, virtual tours or yeah. through, you know, 360 captures of our physical spaces. And, you know, to me, that doesn't get to the fundamental problem because those spaces, the physical spaces are meant to be physical spaces. You know, they don't have anywhere near the same value when they're mediated by a screen. And I think first and foremost, that's because the space of the boutique isn't the thing. The thing is the human interaction as we were talking about before. The question really wasn't how can we provide virtual boutiques? The question was how can we make a premium feeling human interaction experience and a product presentation that can happen across distances? So what we did do was to create uh, a digital salon, which was more like a soundstage, um, something that has multiple cameras, special lighting, special sets that allow for digital appointments at a very high quality of presentation. That was a new way of selling for us. You know, it was a distant selling for scenarios where the sales associate and the client might be in the same location, actually the same city, but they're not comfortable with seeing one another. But we learned so much from having that mode of interaction that now that has become a permanent part of our selling ecosystem. And it's something that's going to be rolling out at more boutiques because it really fulfilled a need that we probably had before the pandemic, but we didn't realize it. Was there anything eye-opening about the customer? I think it was maybe assumed before that project that our clients would be pretty uncomfortable making transactions from just a digital presentation. Mm-hmm but we were proven wrong. You know, clients' comfort with digital platforms extends much beyond retail. You know, they're just like us. They're doing Zooms at their office. You know, they're buying they're buying products online. And of course, they're okay in the end with doing those kinds of things with us. And I think in some ways we're honored because what we're talking about here was an exclusive experience. It wasn't something that was offered to every single client. And so it's a way honestly, paradoxically, to make the client feel more valued um, and and more special. And I think it fits into the appointment-only model that we adopted during the pandemic, where it was a solution to prevent transmission of COVID-19. It was, you know, minimizing the number of people that were in the boutiques. But in the end, both the clients and the sales associates preferred that mode of interaction because the sales associates could focus the dedicated time on one client and really address what their needs are. And the clients receive the individualized attention that is not always possible to give them in a, in a boutique that's busy with foot traffic. So these are both wonderful discoveries that, um, you know, no one is thankful that the pandemic happened, but it was a catalyst for us to do this kind of experimentation. And what we discovered was really valuable for our business moving forward. And as people were coming out of lockdown, many luxury brands accelerated into digital spaces with more integrated approach involving stores, e-commerce, and other points of sale, almost blurring the lines between the different channels. So what has been Cartier's approach to the role of retail in this new world? Well, I think what you're describing is kind of the, the deep fracturing of the different parts of the experience where you know, it was maybe the final nail in the coffin of assuming that there was a fundamental difference between um, distant transactions versus in-store transactions and that, you know, the store provides uh, something very fundamentally necessary to the experience of luxury. It does, but conducting a transaction is, is not the reason why it should exist. That the store then exists for experiment uh, experience. We can conduct 
transactions there with physical products that are there, but we can also conduct digital transactions from the boutique. We can um, conduct uh, transactions with product that doesn't exist there. We can show product that doesn't exist um, in the physical space. And so all of those became de facto functional changes for the boutiques, which now that we have them, we need to design with more intentionality. Um, and this is, I think, the challenge for us in the next year is to really make sure that every step of those new kinds of client interactions feels as premium as the default mode of interaction, the physical selling used to be for people before the pandemic. So one of the biggest challenges facing heritage luxury brands is becoming and staying relevant for a new generation of clients. Relying on heritage alone is not enough for luxury brands to woo an increasingly younger and diverse clientele. Although storytelling remains critical, innovation is essential for brands to prove their relevancy. So how does a 175-year-old brand like Cartier bring its heritage into the future through innovation? Yeah, I think it's the fundamental question for us. I think, you know, when I joined Cartier for this project, a lot of people were surprised that the project of the Retail Innovation Lab existed. I think where that surprise comes from is the supposition that heritage is somehow antithetical to innovation, or at least there's a tension between the two. But the way I view it is that the heritage aspects of our brand, which go beyond storytelling, I think it's the norms, you know, uh, of our behaviors, it's our grammar, the style of our products, the techniques we use for constructing them, design motifs and sources of inspiration. All of those things are the truths of the brand and they become the raw material that can be used for expressions that take any form. And I think right now, when you think about it in the year 2021, we are fortunate that that heritage really provides substantial meaning for people, especially younger audiences who are seeking authenticity and are so wary of invented marketing messages. You know, I don't think that there's a tension there at all. I think it depends on how far back you look into the brainstem to find the constraints that you use for design. I think our challenge will be in how we create a role for ourselves within a landscape where the client is empowered with very sophisticated modes of self-representation um, in brands, in ways that brands are often excluded from. And TikTok is a great example of that. You know, a world where we have individual creation, a, a world that totally ignores processed brand messaging and content. How does our heritage fit into that scenario? I don't know the answer to that. You know, that's a scenario where we must learn to speak in new ways and be bold enough to put ourselves into new places and use a voice that those kinds of audiences can hear. And so to me, that's really the fundamental challenge for innovation in the context of heritage. I was reading in the FT, your chief executive, uh, Cyril Vigneron, he said, the brand has been rejuvenated by selling the same thing. I said, we should not try to make young products for young people at cheap prices. It's not about that. You have to explain classics to a younger generation in a modern way. So what is Cartier doing at its boutiques to appeal to a younger generation of shoppers in a modern way while still staying true to its past? Yeah, I think it's true that our core remains consistent. But, you know, as we were saying before, the ways people access it change. And that can be true in very literal ways, um, meaning our modes of selling, like click from store and buy online, pick up a store and those, those kinds of things. Um, of course, you know, those kind of transactional innovations. But I think it's maybe more interesting to talk about how it connects to our ways of of understanding how the people in that generation can connect with our spirit. And I would use the example, I think, of the Cartier Foundation, which 
you know, for over 35 years, the foundation has worked with emerging contemporary artists in the creation of specific commissioned works. And now, you know, after all of those decades has amassed a collection of artifacts and installations and experiences that's really unlike anywhere else in the world. We're at a point where the foundation has been expanding to show those to new audiences and putting um, exhibitions on tour and going into new markets, uh, activating new kinds of spaces. And sometimes that also includes the boutiques. You know, to me, those speak not in any way literally to the brand or its products, but it does speak to something about who we are at our core. That kind of speaking, those kinds of projects really unite affinity groups that go much beyond old and young. That's really not a question of generation or of demographic. It's, mm -hmm. it's about helping someone see their own interests and aptitudes in the brand itself. To me, that's a really wonderful thing to do in our boutiques. And it's something that, you know, th that appeals to the younger generation in its authenticity as much as it does to older generations. You were talking earlier about the sales associates, and they've taken on a much more elevated role in guiding your journey into the world of the brand. Luxury retailers are starting to equip staff with tech-enabled resources to connect with consumers and provide these next-level services. They're investing in communication platforms that are helping employees share real-time information to ensure highly informed customer support. Is the Retail Innovation Lab involved in creating new platforms and solutions for sellers? Yeah. Oh, my gosh. Absolutely. Um, I think the things that you mentioned, they're uh, aspects of this broader topic of telepresent interaction, um, which our business has been already doing in many ways. But, you know, as I said before, it, it expanded greatly since COVID. Um, and we need to invent new kinds of platforms for our sales associates to do what they do best. Um, and, you know, that can be things like virtual try-on, for example, which is mm -hmm. obviously huge for every jewelry retailer out there, but it's also expanding into the worlds of clienteling and product presentation. It's about people learning to be on camera, to be comfortable, um, to change their body language, and to create tools that our sales associates can instantly understand and deploy quickly when they're in a, what is often a high-stakes live client interaction. Just like everybody, our sales associates are people who have varying degrees of comfort with digital platforms and with digitally mediated interaction. And it's really an interesting challenge to design interfaces that they can use to gracefully connect their expertise to clients in ways that feel natural to them. You know, part of that is teaching them how to use new platforms, but the teaching is, is interesting. I think it's, you know, having people memorize functions of a new platform by training is not as effective as making the UI for that platform instinctually navigable and sensible to those people, which then fundamentally is a design problem. So to do that for new mixed reality technologies and mixed reality platforms that allow our sales associates to incorporate new modes of interaction with their clients, we really have to dig deep to call upon the ways of interaction that the sales associates understand already. You know, to speak just about the sales associates as an audience, that really offers both opportunities and limitations that don't exist for users that are outside our brand. To me, that is the key value of having design teams within innovation on a full-time basis. To design those kinds of services, we must natively understand the world that we're in. And that's really a lot harder for an agency that's coming in cold and you know, an agency that might not be spending all of its time working specifically on Cartier right. projects, because of course they don't. And so that's a great example of why we've chosen the design-led approach to innovation in the first place. So let's talk about you. So since joining the Retail Lab, what has been the most interesting part of what you do? 
And I would say marrying these two worlds together. You know, we're in Brooklyn. We have a staff that is alien to the cardio business. You know, these are profiles that haven't been employed, especially within the subsidiary market before. And so translating their style and their work to the world of the Maison is an interesting challenge. And also, you know, really learning how to keep those profiles of people happy in this right. environment. You know, our staff don't come from communities that have an inherent desire to work in luxury. So we can't rely on the Cartier name to be something that on its own is enough to retain staff and keep them happy. So for me in managing the lab, that's a challenge of translation in both directions. I've learned so much, and I would say that's probably the most interesting part of what we've been doing here. And what new technologies are you excited about? Oh, well, I'm sure I'm supposed to say NFTs. <laughs> um, yeah, no, I mean, I get pitched so often by agencies who believe we have a unique opportunity to make yeah. zillions of dollars doing of NFTs. Course. And honestly, they're probably right. Right. But my question is, what is the relevance for Maison that has built its entire history and sense of self on tangible goods? It's funny because I do really think uh, the issue of NFTs are interesting, but right. I get pitched constantly by um, agencies who want to do NFTs with us. And, you know, they suggest ideas like dressing avatars or selling limited edition JPEGs of our pieces. And to me, that is just not the answer. Um, it's the, you know, the, those kinds of things don't connect with who we are as a Maison in, in any fundamental way. But that's not to say that there's no value in our world for tokenized digital assets, I guess you could say, if not NFTs. We need, again, to really dig deep into our prehistory and find what are the principles that can align with this and are there opportunities. And so I can't say the work that we're doing in this area, but maybe you'll see something about it in the coming months. So what do you think the luxury boutique will look like 10 years from now? Will physical spaces be no longer about selling, but perhaps entirely devoted to the brand experience instead? What do you think? Oh, it's funny. Before Cartier, I worked for an agency that did a lot of work in futurism. And so through that, I've seen firsthand how even with the most sophisticated forecasting. It's basically impossible not to be wrong about what right, you assume, right. yep. um, you know, even on a short time frame like 10 years. I think it's right to assume that the borders between functions like selling and brand experience won't be meaningful anymore. I mean, our client expectations are already in that place where there's no longer any kind of significant distinction between physical and digital selling and media and hospitality and storytelling and other kinds of experiences. And so it's up. It, it's us who need to catch up in terms of figuring out how physical spaces can remain a meaningful part of that world when thought of in that in in that way. I have a feeling that that's not incremental change. That's that's fundamental change, and you know that's as true for our business as it is for all retailers. And you know why there's so famously a crisis around this topic right now. Mm -hmm. um, I think what's also true about our business is that like other retailers, we are a big ship to steer. I can't claim that I know what the boutique will look like in 10 years, but I'd say it seems very likely that even thinking in terms of singular functions like selling and brand experience will feel outmoded and we need to be able to change our norms of experience design accordingly. So my final question, Andrew, is the luxury item question, which I ask all my guests. So if you were stranded on a deserted island and you could only have one luxury item with you, what luxury item would that be? It can't be any form of air transportation, ground transportation, water transportation, or anything that requires mobile service. It's just you 
a few palm trees, sand surrounded by water. What would that one luxury item you would like to have with you? So I guess you've had guests before talk about the Concorde or something like that. <laughs> um, no, so not that. I, I guess, okay, so we have to assume that luxury items are about beauty and emotional meaning and not function, I guess, in this case. So I think what I would choose would be the ruby ring that I inherited from my grandmother. You know, she was someone who wasn't wealthy at all. She grew up in the Ozarks during the Great Depression. This was one of the only really nice luxury items that she herself possessed. And so I think on a desert island, I'd need motivation to stay alive and to stay persistent in getting off the island. So I think something that symbolizes transmission between generations and that I'm a link in a chain with responsibility to something bigger than myself, I think that would be pretty important. So that's what I would choose. I love that answer. Andrew Harsager, Head of Retail Innovation Lab at Cartier. Thank you so much for joining me on The Luxury Item. Thank you very much, Scott. It's been a pleasure. That's it for this episode of The Luxury Item Podcast. Thank you so much for listening. If you found this useful and entertaining, I would be really grateful if you can share it with a friend or colleague. I would love it if you subscribe so you never miss an episode. And while you're there, be sure to rate and review us on Apple Podcasts. It really helps other listeners find us. The Luxury Item Podcast is a production of Silvertone Consulting. I'm your host, Scott Kerr. Until next time.